you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rael. We believe that God still speaks through His Word and His people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh therefore what God has joined together let no one separate Mark 10 7 9 good morning so in every love story the main focus of the love story is the falling in love part Right? This is what every movie is about. This is what every story kind of culminates in. It is two people who, by fate or by happen chance, right, meet and they like fall in love, you know? And then something happens in the story that they face a challenge together. And often it ends with the relationship dissolving in some, right? They have to break up. It's some forbidden love kind of thing. And just before the film's about to end, they realize. They can't live without one another, right? Like, they are destined to be together. And so then comes this big romantic gesture, right? Whether it was like last week, Tom Cruise coming in and saying, um, you know, you complete me. Or if it's um, the 80s film standing out there with the boom box, you know, I love you. I'm declaring my love for you. And then the couple gets together and then the screen rolls. And there's, you know, uh, some, some music playing that makes you cry and happy. And boom, it's beautiful. And one of the most famous love stories is The Notebook. Now, I'm going to be real honest with you guys. Not a fan of this movie. You may hate on me. That's fine. But in the movie, and I have a photo behind, right, there's Noah and I forget, Allie, I think. Yeah. You guys are mad. Yeah, Allie. Okay, I'm sorry. So in the story, right, it follows them at the beginning, the falling in love portion, right? And then it follows them, you know, again when they find themselves later. And then it fast forward all the way to the very end of their lives. The only thing missing from this story is approximately 50 years of their life, right? So much, the bulk of their life is missing. And what's so funny is all these stories end with, you know, happily ever after. And the way this movie ends, if you don't know, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but it gives you that kind of sense of, like, love exists, thank you, you know? But it's, it's happily ever after. Now, here's the question. What the heck happens after happily ever after? We don't know. It's just like once the couple comes together, then it's like, boom, instant bliss for the rest of your life. And this is the messaging we get about marriage, is that marriage is like this culmination of falling in love. And then after falling in love and you cross the finish line of the wedding day, it's like, boom, instant bliss for the rest of your life. Ask anybody who's been married longer than 10 minutes if that is what the experience is like. If it is just you wake up and you just levitate towards the kitchen and there's your spouse making you breakfast and cup of coffee, you know, cater to you in bed, good morning, my love. They don't have morning breath. They don't have bed head. They're just glorious. You know what I mean? And every day is like this. They just cater to your needs. You get home after a long day. There they are. Do you want a back rub? You know, don't worry. I'm making dinner. It's steak with a glass of wine, whatever it is, right? We think that's how marriage is. And then you get there. And you walk in the door, and your spouse is the one acting, asking you for a back rub. And you guys are fighting about who's going to make dinner, so instead you get Taco Bell because you couldn't decide who was ultimately going to make dinner. And then you put on your Netflix show, and you guys argue about what to watch. He wants to watch the action film. You want to watch the new romantic comedy out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly, you become disillusioned with marriage. Each of us believes our love lives will look a certain way. We all carry with us the expectations of our idealized picture of marriage, and we bring that with us to the altar, only to become disillusioned and disappointed by what marriage ultimately looks like. And as time goes on, that disillusionment transforms into discontentment, and often 
that discontentment leads down the path of divorce. Two once enchanted people, as time goes on, become estranged and sometimes ultimately endure the pain of a death of a marriage. Right now, over half of marriages end in divorce. You know that statistic by this point. Leading many to despair about marriage altogether with questions like, does this thing even work? Does anyone even make it out of marriage alive? Why get married at all? Celeste and myself are uh, six years running up on seven, and it has been a blast uh, since Celeste and I embarked on the journey of marriage. And I was looking back at wedding photos, and I was like, who let these middle schoolers get married? You know, I feel so young in that photo, and no one taught me how to, like, properly trim a mustache. So if you ever see those photos, they're rough, guys. But I look back, and I think, man, those two kids had no idea what was in store for them. And so by no means am I a marriage expert by no means have I arrived, but my goal today is to share from some of the experiences and teachings that Celeste and I have learned on our journey in marriage. And I want to be honest. That first year of marriage for Celeste and I was hard. Not because my wife is a difficult person or anything of that nature, but because we both came in with expectations we had for the marriage uh, that were sources of tension as the marriage went on. At that time, we had gone through a lot of stuff externally, but at the same time, we were having uh, challenges in our marriage about how we are to actually live this thing out. And my selfishness was exposed pretty quickly. I can stand before you today and honestly say that my marriage is way better than any sort of love story, notebook, Nicholas Sparks, Taylor Swift song thing. Why? Because it's real. And I love that about it. And so you can have your Nicholas Sparks and Taylor Swift song because I know I have the real thing. But all of this makes marriage a confusing reality to navigate, and it begs the question, what is marriage even? And to answer this question, I think there's two primary frameworks around thinking about marriage. It's marriage as contract and marriage as covenant. So let's first talk about the contract view of marriage. Now, I don't think we think about this in our mind as we embark on marriage, but this is really the underlying framework and honestly, the most dominant view of marriage in our culture. The main idea as marriage as, uh, as a contract is the idea that two people make a commitment to one another, but there are stipulations in the fine print that would enable them to exercise leaving the marriage at any time. And I think that this framework is primarily summarized by four components. And these things are the things that are kind of in the fine print of marriage. It's that of attachment, consumption, rights, and happiness. Attachment, consumption, rights, and happiness. Let's first talk about attachment. Modern marriage is primarily about emotional attachment. Now, I don't want to trivialize or make that seem like it's a small thing because it's not. However, emotional attachment is not strong enough to sustain a marriage. It is important for the relationship getting off of its feet, but it's not strong enough to sustain a lifetime of love. Right, you meet somebody, you fall in love, and then you ride that wave as long as humanly possible. And just as easily as you fell into love, you fall out of love. And over time, that marriage dies. And we hear this language all the time, right? We have fallen out of love, we've grown apart, that kind of language. And so the idea here is that once that love has ran its course, once that emotional attachment is no longer there, then the marriage is over. And the marriage is only as strong as the emotional attachment. The next idea is that of consumption. Many of us come into marriage thinking, what can I get out of this? Now, we would never outright say that, right? We're never telling our spouse that. But that's kind of what we really believe down deep within. It's like, are they meeting my needs? Are they giving me the things that I want? Are they fulfilling the vision that I had for my spouse to be? And if this starts to not give me the things that I want, then I'm out. The next thing is about rights. Now, of course, we don't use this language, but it's often how we feel, right? This marriage is about me getting what I deserve. This is about me getting my expectations met in marriage. And so it sounds like something in your mind, now that we're married, you fill in the blank. You do this, you do that, you behave in this certain way. And so we have expectations we bring into marriage, and if you fail to meet those expectations, I'm out. And lastly, it's the idea of happiness. 
Now, this is probably the most pervasive idea around marriage, is that marriage exists to make you happy. Now, we are functionally asking another person to be our source of happiness. Think about the kind of pressure that's on that. It sounds something like, I want you to be emotionally available for me, but not needy, right? I want you to make a lot of money, but not work too much. I want you to be insanely attractive, but not care if I let myself go a bit, right? I want you to know what I need without me having to communicate that to you. I want you to just be able to intuitively know the things that I need. I want them to accept me as I am and not try to change me, but be open to feedback and criticism about my perception of how they're doing, right? And I want them ultimately to make me happy. This idea of the other person fulfilling all the longings in me that they are to make me happy. Nancy Piercy says this, a contractual view of marriage turns each person into an independent transacting party seeking his or her own enlightened self-interest. And this is the common framework we bring into marriage. Who's ready to sign on the dotted line, right? Nobody. N nobody when it's, that, when it's that openly communicated. And the other question is this, how is this vision for marriage paying off? Like, are we just, like, more happy than ever and our marriage is more fruitful than ever? The stats would say otherwise. And so this poses the question, is there another way? And I'm so dang happy you asked because there is. And that is what would you say is the covenant view of marriage. Now, I realize the word covenant, it sounds particularly biblical or ancient. I highly doubt in the last 30 days you've entered into a covenant with another person, right? This is not something we do in our modern age. But it is, I think, the best way of describing what a biblical view of marriage is. The idea in covenant is that it is a promise, but it's not based on circumstance. It's based on relationship. A contract view of marriage is saying, you do all these things, then I'll do all these things. And if we're both meeting our obligations, then we can continue this working partnership. Covenant says, I'm all in no matter what you decide to do. I'm going to be faithful to the things that I've promised, even if you don't hold your end of the bargain. And covenant runs a, a beautiful seam all throughout the scriptures in terms of God's relationship to us. And we'll get to that later. But think about what we exchange when we exchange vows. It is the language of covenant. We say things like in traditional vows, for better or what? Worse. For richer or poorer. In sickness and in health. Until what? Death do us part. We make these kind of vows that withstand circumstantial realities happening all around the relationship that we hold to no matter what. We would be shocked if we showed up to a wedding and the vows were contractual in nature. Imagine a, 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 a bride and a groom standing across from her and the groom tells the woman, I promise to love you unless I don't feel like it anymore. You would be shocked. You would be blown away. You'd be appalled. You'd be like, sis, run, right? Because there's, every, there's everything about that relationship that is selfishly based, that is contractually based. And so we would be shocked if we would hear that. But here's the honest truth. Many of us go down the aisle believing that very thing, believing that view of marriage. Now, covenant marriage, covenantal marriage is categorized by four of the realities. The first is commitment. Marriage as covenant means whole life union. There is no back door on the relationship. As I've said before, real intimacy can only be cultivated in an environment of stability. The back door cannot be open on the relationship. Otherwise, intimacy can never grow. Real love can never flourish. And so marriage as covenant means I'm committed to you. I'm sticking it out with you no matter what. In good seasons and in bad, whether this relationship is easy or hard, we are in this together. The second thing is about this view of marriage is about contribution. The covenant view of marriage is not what I can get out of it, but instead, what can I give to it? It is not about personal fulfillment. It is about, rather, fulfilling the other. It's not thinking, how can I get this person to meet my needs? But instead, how can I love this person in such a way to bring beauty and goodness out of their life? 
Tim Keller says this, the Christian teaching does not offer a choice between fulfillment and sacrifice, but hear this, but rather mutual fulfillment through mutual sacrifice. There is no 50-50 in marriage, as you may have heard. There's only 100-100. We are both in this thing. Next is about responsibility. It is not about me getting what I deserve, but it's instead, what have I been entrusted to and seeing my spouse as a gift that I am called to steward and bring the best out of. And last, marriage is about holiness. The covenant view of marriage is not simply about me being happy, though marriage will bring you happiness, but it's instead about me and my spouse becoming more like Jesus through our relationship. That marriage enables us to reach our redemptive potential. And I would say this has absolutely been true in my own life. No one has helped me grow like my wife. Now, those are the two frameworks of marriage. Now I want to turn to Jesus' words in Mark 10. He says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So we're jumping right in the middle of a conversation Jesus is having with the Pharisees. They've come up to Jesus asking Jesus about his thoughts on divorce. And as a rebuttal, as a response, Jesus lays forth his vision of marriage. And the first part of the vision is this. It's mutual abandon. He says a, f- a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. It is, this is an idea that's been known as leaving and cleaving. The basic idea here is that when two people come together, it's the beginning of a new family. That both the husband and the wife are leaving their nuclear family to create a new family of their own. Both are leaving their individual family units to create a brand new family. Now, why did I choose the words of mutual abandon? What this does not mean is that the husband and the wife abandons their family in the sense that they no longer have communication with them. But they're leaving the, the covering of that family and creating a brand new family which will birth new family outside of it. The idea being here, there's no plan B, there's no backup, that this marriage is it. This is my new family. If you've noticed, my wife got some new ink lately. It's pretty gangster. She's got a ship tattooed on her. And in Latin, uh, underneath the ship, it says, uh, burn the ships. Uh, It's a famous story of uh, early conquistadors who came here And I forget the guy's name. It's a Spanish name. He came to conquer or whatever. And when he showed up, to keep his guys from wanting to ever go back, they burned the ship. So there was no way back. So it's like, we're here. And my wife got this so romantic as like a declaration to me to let her know there's no going back. We're in it together. I know. My wife is a romantic. But that's the idea of burning the ships. No looking back. This is my new family. This is what we're invested in. This is what we're doing. Mutual abandon. The next thing that Jesus specifically talks about here is that the, ma- the marriage is between a man and a woman, male and female. That for Jesus, gender is a gift to reflect the omago Dei, the image of God. And that men and women are, c- are equal, are created equal in all ways, but men and women are also created differently. And God wants to use both men and women to image him in the world, and this looks differently in marriage, and we'll talk about that later. But this is the foundation upon which the family is built. And uh, next week, we'll have a more thorough, uh, engaging conversation on the topic of gender. Next, Jesus says that the two will become one flesh. This is an enmeshment of two whole persons. If you've been tracking with us in this series, I did a whole thing about the word ichad and what it means that two becoming one. It's this two souls becoming engaged and intertwined together, enmeshed together, two people becoming one. And so in the eyes of Jesus, marriage is no small thing. It is the foundation upon which a family is built, namely that two individuals become one in covenant with God. Then Jesus says, let no one separate this union that's been brought together. Now, for us to talk about this, I think it's important that we talk about this idea of love. When we think of love in the modern West, we often think about emotion. Right? We think about the butterflies in the stomach and the way that just eyes glow. Like we think about a couple who first comes together. No, you get off the phone. No, you get off, right? That is what we think about love. And when we watch the movies, like that's what it's about, these big romantic moments. 
And I would argue that's not the biblical vision of love. That is an emotion, a good one. I'm not here to like bag on it. It's a good emotion, but it's a temporary one. Anybody who's been married for any amount of time, right, if you're 20 years down the road and you're still, no, you get off the phone. No, you got to, one of you is going to get locked up or something, right? There's no way that you could sustain that kind of love for that long or that type of love for that kind of long. It's the early introductory phase, and most married couples will tell you, thank God we're no longer at that place, right? It's like we go to bed now at a reasonable hour. It's not 2 a.m. still on the phone. It's like we're in bed by 9.30, thank you, Jesus, right? And we can be confident and secure in that in our relationship. But it's that love is not this primarily this feeling that you get, the warm fuzzies or whatever. It is, according to the biblical authors, love is actively seeking the good of another person. This is agape love. It is self-sacrificial, self-giving love that actively seeks the good of another. And so love, according to the scriptures, is that. Now, this may bring feelings, and it may not. But that's, that's, that's not pertinent to you just choosing to love somebody, whether you feel it or not. It's you choosing to love somebody um, because it's a decision you make. It's an action, and it requires uh, things to back it up. And so as Jesus is talking about marriage, this is the framework he's working out with love, that it's not a feeling or an emotion. It's a decision. It's an action. And this is how love is sustained over time, challenges, and difficulties. It's because it's a decision that you make. One of the things I hear often in conversations about marriage is how the other person has changed so much. And people begin to wonder the question, did I marry the wrong person? And I love what Stanley Hauerwas says. He says this, we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while, and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. I am not the same man I was six and a half years ago when Celeste and I met. Thank God for a lot of those ways, right? But I'm not the same person, and neither is she. And so when we put all this pressure on marrying the quote-unquote right person, we become quickly disillusioned as time and things change that person. One of the things that he also also says is that you always marry the wrong person, right? There's no one who checks all the boxes, and even if they do, they change over time. But it's about loving the person that you've chosen to love, not them necessarily just being the right person. The idea of two becoming one and what God brings together, let no man separate, is this vision that extends for marriage for the whole life, through every season and through all amounts of change. And we face disillusionment in marriage is because we've often begun to love the idea of the person that we're married to, not the actual person who we've been given. Now, unfortunately, in this series, I don't have the time to address the specific conversation of, of divorce more fully. A few years ago, I taught through the Gospel of Mark, and I did an entire sermon on that. But uh, our culture, I just want to have a brief word on this, our culture has often trivialized or minimized divorce. But if you have been through one, you know how incredibly painful and disorienting that can be. And divorce is never the heart of God, and it is always a byproduct of human brokenness. But with that being said, Jesus and the biblical authors urge us to fight for marriage and pursue reconciliation wherever it is possible. But there are times when a marriage dies, and the acknowledgement of that is divorce. In Mark 10, Jesus says that one of those circumstances is adultery. And he specifically addresses the question that the Pharisees have, the religious leaders at the time, around a phrase used in Deuteronomy, talking about a woman doing something indecent. And this always meant adultery. But this is not Jesus' full explanation on what are the causes for the death of a marriage. At least I don't believe so. Some people believe that it is, but I don't believe so. Because later on in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul adds abandonment to this list. And I would argue that Exodus 21 also adds abuse or neglect to this list of reasons why a marriage dies. Again, if possible, the heart of God is to always fight and pursue reconciliation. But there are times where that's not possible for those reasons I just listed. And so all I want to say here is this. If you are walking through or have walked through the painful reality of divorce, 
we want to walk with you, and we want to let you know that you are welcome here. And if you are in a place right now where you're contemplating divorce, we would love to talk with you and walk with you through that decision and wrestle with the teachings of Jesus. And so now, now that we know what marriage is, the question presents itself, what is marriage for? And to answer this question, we always got to go to Genesis, right? That's where we have to go. And so um, I see that there are five pillars of marriage for what marriage is for, and I'm borrowing from uh, some of John Mark Comer's work in this in his book, Loveology. The first pillar is that of friendship. Notice it says in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. I want you to keep in mind everything we talked about last week in terms of singleness, right? None of that's going away, but I want to talk about friendship specifically in marriage. Your spouse is supposed to be your closest friend. This is one of the great reasons for marriage. It is somebody that you can walk with life with, through life with that you actually enjoy being around. And your spouse is meant to be your primary relationship in your life. Marriage takes two people into the deepest levels of intimacy, and those levels of intimacy are only possible through friendship. I can stand before you today and let you know that genuinely Celeste is my closest friend. She gets every part of me, the good, the bad, and especially the ugly, right? She gets all of this. There is nobody else that I want to share in my best and worst moments with than my wife. She gets the first phone call after something good happened. She gets the first phone call after something bad happened. And I can genuinely tell you today, I thoroughly enjoy spending time with my wife. No one makes me laugh like her. No one makes me see the world like she does. She is genuinely my best friend. And this is not like, oh, Angie's just gushing about his wife on a Sunday. But I am gushing about my wife on a Sunday. But this is one of the byproducts and beautiful pillars that exist within marriage. Every Thursday night, Lord willing, right, Celeste and I have a date night. And one of my very favorite things is the car ride up together. If you have kids that are of a younger age, we got five and a two-year-old, there is no such thing as a quiet car ride, right? There's crying, a Cheerios flying up to the front, right? They're fighting over a two-cent toy. That's our drives all the time, right? But when me and Celeste get together on a date night, we are like blaring 2000s R&B music that we grew up playing with, right? We're singing together. We're laughing together. We're having a good time. And this has been a pillar in our marriage from the very beginning, this idea of friendship, this idea of cultivating our friendship together. Your spouse should be your closest friend your closest confidant, the person you want to pour into. When I meet with a couple who is not in a good place, one of the first areas we realize that they've drifted apart is in the area of friendship. That they've stopped being friends to one another. It's become more transactional. It's been more like roommates together rather than friends. And this is the first pillar. Marriage is about friendship. The second thing is that marriage is about partnership. Genesis 1.28 says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, and hear this, and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In the Genesis narrative, Adam and Eve were given the task to rule and subdue over the earth. They were given the task of gardening or cultivating the world to bring forth goodness and life from it. Our vision of marriage, a Christian view of marriage is that of partnership. That we have come together, not just to stare in each other's eyes in a coffee shop with, you know, beautiful music playing, but that we are partnering together with God and what he's doing in the world. And that anything we do, we lead out of our marriage. It is a, our calling is closely attached to our marriage. And so the purpose of marriage is not in and of marriage itself, but is this partnership that we're leveraging for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the kingdom. And so in marriage, we are learning to push and challenge one another to step into the very calling that God has on each of our lives, reminding one another of the things we need to say no to as well as the things we need to say yes to. Next, marriage is about sexuality. Genesis 2, 23-25, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Remember, the fundamental drive of sexuality is to lead us in love towards others. And this comes to a fulfillment in the confines of marriage. 
God created marriage as the context for our sexuality. It is a safe and beautiful space to explore intimacy, love, and connection. And here in these parts of Genesis, we're reading Adam's poetry. Now, if we're super honest, not so good, right? Like, ladies, if your man wrote you a love note and he's like, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? You will be called woman for you were taken out of man. You're like, you got to level up. You know, that's not that good. I'm not going to lie to you, right? But what Adam is basically saying here, this is the, one of the first love things. He's like, you are just like me, and you were made for me, and I was made for you, and we were made for one another, right? And this is his declaration to his bride. Now, notice here in the text, they felt no shame. They were able to walk in the very gift that God had planned for them in totality and joy because shame was not present, and they were living according to their purpose or telos. Next is the idea of family, right? Uh, Genesis 128, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. With sexuality comes kiddos, right? And so what God is saying is yes and amen. He's blessing that. He's giving it to them as a gift to enjoy and steward to bring kids into the world. And so the outflow of that is family. One of the purposes of marriage is to fill the earth, namely to have kids. Now, there are some for those that this will not be a reality, but it does not mean they cannot live out this calling. They can absolutely live out this calling in different and creative ways to create families, i.e. adoption, being spiritual parents, all sorts of different realities who can fill the earth and continue the Genesis mandate of cultivating goodness. And lastly, the fifth pillar is about formation. The last pillar is about us becoming more like Jesus. Our spouse is given to us to help us be formed and shaped into the image of Christ. I will never forget. We're about like two or three weeks before the wedding. And the church that we were attending to, I had an older guy, you know, come up to me. And he knows, you know, we're talking about the wedding day and stuff like that coming up. And we're standing there in the coffee shop. And he looks at me and he says, you know, marriage is going to expose how much of a flesh ball you are. You know, and I'm like, okay, thanks. You know, like, that might be your marriage, bro. You might have some issues there, but not me and Celeste. We're different, right? And then about a couple months into the marriage, those words came back to haunt me. And I was like, he was so right. Because marriage exposes our selfishness, right? I had never known there was, it was possible to fight with somebody about how to properly load a dishwasher, right, until we're six months in. The forks and knives don't go that way. They go this way. Bowls turn this way. In my house, bowls are turned this way. Well, in this house, bowls, you know, right, is that kind of a thing. And it's small things of how we squeeze the toothpaste. Is she a, in the middle, grab it, squeeze it, or from the bottom, you know, and kind of slowly work its way up. And you think those are trivial until you're living it, right? And then you're like, what world am I living in? And you realize that it's possible to fight over toothpaste. And you realize, I am more broken than I thought I ever imagined. Eddie Cantor says this, marriage is an attempt to solve problems together which you didn't even know you had when you were on your own. And this is so true. When I was single, I had no idea any of this stuff was there, right? One of my notorious things, so it's not just, you know, Celeste, is she calls them my rapture socks. I have this terrible habit of just, like, taking off my socks wherever I am, and that's where they are. Don't judge me. I'm sharing my heart, okay? And Celeste calls them my rapture socks because they'll just be a pair of socks where I was supposed to be, just gone, right? That was never a problem when I was single. Why? Because it was just me. And then all of a sudden, my socks are now a problem, right? And so when we're fighting, hashing it out, it's my house. I can put my socks. You know, I'm realizing, oh, something's really broken in me, right? That this is, I was unaware of this. And don't judge me. You got your own stuff. Don't judge me. You got your own stuff. But my marriage helps me become more like Jesus because my wife calls out the things that are broken and calls me up to the things that I was called and made to do, right? Nobody else is like a cheerleader like my wife either who encourages me and leads me and calls me to the things that God has called me to. And so that's the purpose of marriage. Now, how is this, like, lived out? How do we, like, walk through these waters together? And I would like to call it the dance of marriage, which uh, turned to Ephesians 5. Now, if you have ever heard a teaching on marriage, I'm about 97% certain it was taught out of this passage, right? This is, like, the manifesto of marriage in the New Testament. Now, 
I do want to talk about some context before we jump into this because it's important that we understand where Paul's coming from. It's important to realize that Paul is not preaching here to a vacuum or writing here to a vacuum. He's writing to a culture with pre-existing frameworks about marriage and family. It's important to understand Paul is writing to a patriarchal society. It was very clear from the surrounding culture that women were seen as inferior to men. That in this culture that Paul writes to, women were responsible for holding down the home while men were living lives of promiscuity and pleasure. Their only responsibility was to provide. Outside of that, they could do whatever they wanted. In this culture, there was often a large age gap between men and women. Most often, men were getting married around their late 20s and 30s, and uh, women were getting married in their late teens. And so this is the shared framework, cultural framework, that Paul is writing into where men made all the rules and women were told to live by them. Paul here is using a literary form known as household codes, which were typically instructions for the patriarch and how he was supposed to rule over his household as it consisted of women, children, and slaves. One of the most famous household codes ever written was that by, that was written by that of Aristotle. And the common teaching of the day was that women, children, and slaves were inferior by nature, and it was a man's job to rule and have authority over them. Patriarchal society. So Paul is using this framework, but he's subverting it. He's turning it on its head, and he's giving new instruction, new teaching, new insight on how, how the good news about Jesus affects marriage, parenting, and work relationships. And so Paul is using this framework. Now, when someone would read Paul's letter in his day, they would start the letter with the household goals, thinking, oh, this is going to affirm everything I already believe. And so they continue reading, and Paul flips everything on its head. And so as this letter would be read in the community, Paul would functionally be making all of the men very angry and giving the women, children, and slaves an opportunity to feel seen, loved, and heard, and cared for. And so what Paul does first is he gives dignity and value to traditionally subordinate parties, namely wives, children, and slaves, and treats them as dignified moral agents who are not inferior to their not inferior to their spouse, but partners in their household of God. Second, he addresses all three of these areas and gives specific instruction for how people are to store power and how they're supposed to use it to create life-giving relationships. So Paul begins his manifesto, not in verse 22, but in verse 21, by saying this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So again, we're jumping in the middle of the letter, what Paul has been going on saying is he's doing a teaching on what it looks like for a community to be filled by the Spirit. This has been his whole thing all the way uh, leading up from chapter 4 into chapter 5. He's given all this explanation of what it looks to be filled by the Spirit. And he concludes this with saying this is what Spirit-filled relationships look like. And so we're tracking with Paul in his thinking about this is what it looks like for an individual to be spirit-filled. So important note here. This vision of marriage is not possible through idealism or effort. It is only possible by the power of the Spirit. By being filled with the power of the Spirit, this is only possible. Secondly, Paul calls for mutual submission. Now, I can feel the tension in the room. We hear a word submission right? It just feels dirty on our skin, right? Stop saying that word. Because when we think of submission, it is not positive or good thoughts, right? When we think of submission in our modern Western context, it has negative connotations to it, right? It carries with it the ideas of weakness or passivity. It carries with it like the loss of dignity or freedom. It's all negative. But this is not the way the word would be viewed in Paul's day. The word submission simply means to put under, to put under. Um, Paul uses this idea of submission most famously in Philippians chapter 2, where he says that Jesus submitted himself to the Father. He simply put himself under. Jesus never lost his dignity. He never lost his, he never lost his deity. Jesus simply put himself under what God was desiring to do. John Barclay on this idea says this, the simple but powerful word one another turns a one-way relationship of power and superiority into, hear this, a mutual relationship of reciprocal deference 
which seeks to promote the interest of the other. So this idea of submit to one another out of reverence for Christ is not limited to marriage, but it's all of the relationships he goes about talking about, parenting relationships and the idea of slaves and their masters. And so spirit-filled mutual s- submission is the operating system within a marriage and inside the family of God. It is both individuals submitting themselves unto one another as unto Christ. Now notice he says why to submit. The reason for submission is out of reverence for Christ. What makes a Christian marriage different from a secular marriage? Jesus, right? That is the fundamental difference in those two relationships. It's Jesus. It's that we think that Jesus and we act and live as if Jesus is Lord. That's what fundamentally changes the relationship. And so mutual submission is born out of reverence or respect or an acknowledgement that, that Christ is Lord. It is a call to submit to him in our lives. If the telos or purpose of our lives in the language of Paul is to be conformed into the image of the Son, then our lives should look like self-giving love. They should look like Jesus, and this should be manifested in these important relationships. So this is the framework Mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. Let's get into spirit-filled submission for husbands. Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So the first thing Paul calls calls husbands to in their submission is to love their wives with sacrificial love. What is the example Paul gives here? Does he say, love your wives when you feel like loving your wives? No, he says, give up your life for your bride as Jesus has done for the church. That's the example that he sets. How did Jesus love the church? Through dying, right? Fundamentally, the call for husbands is to surrender our selfishness and love our wives as Jesus has loved us. So the question is not in marriage, how do I get this woman to fulfill my needs? But instead, how do I love my wife in such a way that she flourishes under my love and care like Jesus has loved the church? Cynthia Westfall Long says this, the analogy between Christ and the husband should lead a man to share authority, status, and power, and bring freedom that is, comp- that is comparable to what their head, Jesus Christ, has provided for them and intends for the rest of his body. The call for men is sacrificial love. It's not me getting my needs met, but how can I love and serve my wife? The next is that of sanctifying love. Submission for men next, next looks like loving our wives in such a way they flourish underneath our love. That under our love, our wives are nourished and cherished. Gentlemen, this morning, is your wife flourishing because of your love or in spite of it? Is your wife flourishing because of your love or in spite of it? Now, here's an important thing to note. Paul would have functionally made all of the men really upset when he wrote this letter because all of the language he uses about a husband's responsibility were traditionally female duties, uh, females, uh, responsibilities and duties assigned to the females of the house. Notice he says for them to wash them, having no stain or wrinkle. This is a metaphor for doing the clothes washing, stain spotting, ironing, a.k.a. laundry. Right? He said, men, love your wives like laundry, right? Like washing and caring for, removing the stain and the blemish, that kind of caring for, the washing. 
The next analogy he says is to nourish. The idea here is providing food and care, right? And Ephesians later uses this verse in 6.4 to say that of raising children. So a traditional female role in the ancient times was that of preparing the meals. And he's saying nourish your wives, feed your wives in that same way. The third one is to cherish. Literally, the idea here is to make warm. And this primarily, ref primarily refers to what a mother provides for her children. So Paul is flipping this whole thing on its head. In a culture where the men said, you know, women, do what I say. In this way, in the family of God, men sacrificially and in a sanctifying way love, serve, and care for their wives as they have been cared for. This is the call. It is this mutual submission. Again, Cynthia Westfall Long says, through analogy and metaphor, Paul has told the husband to follow Christ by serving his wife's needs. The Greco-Roman distinction between males working and providing in a high-status public sphere, rural, forensic, and political, and females working and providing in a low-status domestic sphere are broken down as Paul unmistakably assigns intimate domestic service to both Christ and to the husbands. Husbands are called to sacrificial, sanctifying love. Moving to wives. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their own husbands in everything. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So, the first thing we see is remember this idea of submission is not do whatever is said, but it's rather put yourself under. Now, here's the big question. What is the wife putting herself under? Sacrificial, sanctifying love. This is what she is submitting to. She is submitting to the, the kind of love that Jesus has displayed for the church. Now, a lot of people read this, and it's been common Christian teaching, that Paul says uh, that this idea of submission means that husband is the leader, he's the unilateral decision maker. If there's ever conflict, the husband's decision always wins out, right? It's all about male leadership. No, the call is to submit to sacrificial love. So ladies, if a man ever responds to you and says, woman, submit, the biblical response to him is man, die, right? Because that's what's being said here, is that Submission is to self-giving, self-pouring out, self-sacrificial love. And the way that Jesus displayed that is through death. And so dying to himself, this man who is crucifying his flesh, is that what you are submitting to, sacrificial and sanctifying care. Okay, that's what Paul is calling for now. Now, another big idea is this idea of headship, right? We have all sorts of connotations that come into our mind with the idea of headship. Now, the word head could either have two meanings. It can mean authority, and that is used in the scripture, but it also can mean source. Now, let's try to determine what we think Paul meant. So, in the ancient world, when a man or a woman would get married, the husband would become her source, her provider, right? He would be the one who would provide for the home, for the family. So, if Paul wanted to communicate authority here, he would have said, uh, other words that accompany that. But notice the example that Paul gives in his use of the word head. He does not give the word or ideas of authority, but he uses the idea of savior to explain what he means by authority or by head. Look at what Philip Payne says. He says this, the place of the final phrase, he being the savior, is called apposition. The placing of a word or a phrase behind another so that it ex the second explains the first. The fact that Paul has modeled all three phrases after one another makes it clear. Paul places Savior in opposition to head to show that he intends head to be understood as equivalent in meaning to Savior. If Paul intended to convey head and the sense of authority, he would have said he being the authority of the body. But his following description of Christ's relationship to the body states nothing about authority but recounts how Christ loved and gave himself for the church to make her holy, to purify her, to feed her, and care for her. These are the actions of a Savior, the source of life and nourishment of his body, the church. 
Paul calls the husband to imitate Christ's action in relation to his wife, not assume authority over her. So the idea here is that the wife would allow herself to be loved, cared, served by her husband's love. And there's this mutual submission to one another in love. Now, the idea of hierarchy has been and is associated with the fall. Think about in Genesis when the curse comes because of the fall. The word spoken to Eve is that your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That this idea of of, uh, oppressive patriarchy stems from the fall. And that marriage is not to operate like the world operates in power dynamics, but is to look and model like the life of Jesus. And the church is to model in that same way of self-sacrificial, self-giving love, both mutually submitting to one another. Now, one of the other things that Paul says here is that wives ought to respect their husbands. Now, ladies, in the same way I ask the husbands, are they flourishing in spite of your love or because of your love? Women, I have to ask you this one question. How do you speak of your husbands? It has become a common thing that I've experienced time and time again that women often speak ill or poorly about their husbands. I think in large part, this has to do with the picture of masculinity in our cultural moment, that it has been either overly masculinized and become some version of masculinity that is tyrannical and oppressive, or it has been demeaned and pushed to the side and masculinity is is viewed as something that is like wrong or evil. But being male and female is an important part of what it means to reflect the image of God. This is masculinity and femininity are those representations. Now, we'll talk about more of this next this week. But when I talk about masculinity and femininity, I'm not talking about, like, lifted trucks and we eat bacon only and, like, tea parties or whatever else. Those are just, like, weird structures that we put around men and women. That's not, not reflections of biblical masculinity and femininity. We'll talk about that more next week, right? But it's, it's this idea of, like, if you watch a TV show, the, f- the husband and the father is often, like, some bumbling idiot, who, like, couldn't function or breathe without, you know, the other people in the family taking care of him. He's, like, he's always the punchline of everything. What did it know? And the laugh track hits or something, you know? That's how masculinity and men are being presented in our culture. And that's not a biblical view of masculinity. And so I think part of what that culture is bred is this really speaking ill and poorly of, I've heard many wives speak poor and ill of their husbands. And as a husband, I must say, I have never known a man to respond well to sarcasm and nagging. I've never known a man to respond well to that. Often what men need most in life is encouragement. They need to be called up to stuff. Men, I think, will rise to the bar that the women in our lives set for them. And I'm going to be honest. As a man, one of the things I need the most is encouragement. I need to be reminded that I'm doing the right thing. I'm going about it the right way. And what crushes a man's spirit faster than anything is sarcasm and nagging. Crushes a man's spirit. And so, an example. Ladies, I realize that uh, the bar has been set pretty low and that, men, we need to level up our games, right? For example, let's say you guys are going to start a date night, okay? We're going to do it. Heard the marriage teaching. We're going to start date night. Boom. First date night, husband's in charge. He's like, all right, we're going to do this. And he chooses Netflix and Taco Bell. Now, I realize I heard a laugh because for most women, that ain't a date night. That's Tuesday. You know what I mean? That's not a date night, you know? A poor way to respond to your husband in this moment is Taco Bell, really, right? Because then what's going to happen? He made this effort thinking, dude, Taco Bell, Netflix, this could be a good night. And you just, like, smash his, his, his thing. So next time, he's going to be so defeated, he's going to want to try, Right? A better response would be like, Taco Bell and Netflix, let's go. I can't wait to see what you come up with next time. And he's all, girl, next time. You thought Taco Bell and Netflix was something. We're going to Vernon Steakhouse. We're going to go do, right? It's like, you thought this was something. You ain't seen nothing yet. Exactly. Exactly. Call us up to something more and beautiful and watch men rise to the occasion. I, pr- I promise you, if you just shift the way you speak about your husband for the next 30 days, you're going to start to see a change in the way you speak to him. 
If most of your words are encouraging and life-giving, watch him rise to that occasion, right? You'll see him flourish underneath that care. And men, if we begin to consider and care for our wives, not see them as just simply the helpmate that's supposed to help us in the things that we're called to do, but you begin to ask the question, in the next 30 days, how can I love and care for my wife that she would flourish underneath my care? How can, when people see her, they see her in radiance and beauty because she's flourishing underneath my love? What is one way this week you could practically serve your wife, right? There is nothing, I think, more romantic in marriage this far on than, right, than when I do the dishes for my wife or something like that. You know what I mean? It's like there's nothing more romantic than that, right? I could write her a poem, I could sing a song, but if I do the dishes, right, I'm in good graces. You know what I'm saying? These little, small, that seem trivial things are ways that we can sacrificially and serve and care for our wives. Laying down our selfishness and, and, and pursuing to love them instead. So, we're winding down here, I promise. Last two things. Next is this of the dance of marriage. If there's a picture for what marriage should look like, it looks like this. It looks like both the husband and wife submitting unto one another and love and care and respect in, in admiration of the other. And it's not about two people grasping for power, but it's about two people in love submitting to one another for the cause of the marriage, for the sake of the marriage. Both husband and wife submitting unto one another. And it becomes this beautiful dance of both leading, of both surrendering, of both giving, of both loving, of both caring for one another. It becomes this beautiful dance of marriage. And Paul concludes by saying that marriage is a window into the gospel. This is this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church. Our marriages are windows into the gospel. That when people see your marriage, they are looking in to see Jesus. And for most of us, our marriage does not reflect the gospel. It does not reflect what Paul has described here. It reflects selfishness, me wanting to get my own needs met. It, it, it reflects a pride and arrogance, a lack of humility. It, it conveys disrespect. It conveys a lot of other things. And so the call for our marriages is that we would love one another in such a way that people would look at our marriages and see the love that Jesus has for his church. They would see the love that the church has for Jesus, and there's this beautiful, reciprocated love. That our marriages, that when we forgive our spouse when they wrong us, it is a picture of Christ forgiving us. When we love our spouse even when it's difficult, it's a picture of God's faithfulness to us. When we stick it out, you know, through good seasons and bad seasons, it's a testament of God's never-changing aspects. Our, our marriages are windows into the gospel. Now, we're going to enter into a time of response. And I firmly believe that God wants to just do some healing work, particularly in the areas of marriage and also in the areas of divorce. And so we want to just create some space now where we're just going to respond to the word today. And we want to pray over marriages. We want to pray over that God would cause marriages to flourish. And this dance of marriage would be lived out and actualized in the marriages of this house. And that there would be such a, a beautiful testimony to the world, to the marriages that come out of and are in Zion. And so we just want to create some space to respond to him. Some of you may come in and your marriage might not be in a good place right now. You might be hurting. You might be wondering. And we just want to stand with you. We just want to pray for you. Pray for your marriage. We want to fight alongside with you as you fight for your marriage. Some of you might be in a good place but want to continue to grow and get better. We would love to pray for you. Love to pray that this would be true. Some of us, it requires repentance, us owning our brokenness, 
us owning the ways in which we've lived in our marriages that does not honor God. And we would love to pray with you in those areas as well. I also want to say, I realize response time can be a little awkward. I do. It's like you're coming up to the front. What is everyone going to think? You know, that kind of a thing. But I will tell you that there's a great gift in being prayed for in the house of God. There's a great gift to that. And you're missing out if you don't receive that gift. You don't have to. You can sit in your seat. No one's going to drag you up here, you know. But I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. I want to lean in a little bit and say, don't leave here without that. Marriage is hard enough already. What could someone praying for you hurt it at all? Would you stand? If you're able? To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.